2 Timothy chapter 4 on sin and judgment. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. May the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. The series on sin and judgment in the New Testament is necessary, as we've been saying, because most people underestimate the amount of sin and judgment mentioned in the New Testament. They think the New Testament is a testament of love, grace, mercy, compassion, and kindness, that there is very little or nothing that it says about what sin is and 
the terrifying judgment of God that awaits for unrepentant sinners. If we don't resolve our sins now by faith in Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again on our behalf, then we will face the righteous judgment of God. We need to practice judgment now for our own souls in order to avoid the eternal judgment of God. This is essentially what we find in the New Testament and as well the Old Testament. But we have to ask, why is it that few people understand this? Why is it that few people see sin for what it is and despise it, detest it, and want to reject it? Why is it that few people are that way? Because they have fallen into the same sin and the same blindness as Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve created perfectly. They had original righteousness. No sin in them whatsoever. And yet they fell into sin. Why? Because they failed to understand sin and judgment. Even as perfect human beings, when they were created on the sixth day and fell into sin on the sixth day, they failed to understand sin. God had told them clearly, from every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the middle of, uh, of the uh, garden, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. If you eat from it, that's the only prohibition. Everything else was available to them. Only one prohibition. It was a test. And we know they failed the test because they pursued that one tree. Instead of avoiding it, they partook of it. And why? They failed to comprehend as innocent, guiltless, sinless people, they failed to comprehend what sin is. Also, they failed to comprehend the righteous judgment of God. God said, you shall surely die. There is nothing ambiguous about that. There is nothing cloudy and muddy about that statement. You shall surely die. If you partake, you will die. What did they fail to comprehend or believe? They failed to believe the righteous judgment of God. Oh, no, no, it's, it's just eating from one tree. It's just a fruit. Nothing serious. I'm not doing anything wrong. That's not that evil. It's not that bad that I'm going to die, that I deserve the wrath of God, the punishment of God, and to be thrown into the eternal lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone. Oh, no, it's not that bad. So they had to mitigate sin. They had to mitigate also the righteous judgment of God. Now, if Adam and Eve did that as sinless, perfect human beings on the day they were created, do we not do the same manifold, manifoldly? Do we not do the same? We who have sin innate, we who have sin as a part of our nature, we who have a fallen nature, 
We who are depraved and corrupt, we have the old nature, the flesh, before our conversion, certainly so. And then it took the miracle of God to change that and bring about our conversion so that our eyes were opened to how loathsome, how detestable, how despicable sin actually is. And it aroused in us the righteous judgment of God. Psalm 119, 104. 119, 104. From your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. From the Word of God we gain understanding, and therefore we hate, should hate, every false way. Hate, it says. It doesn't say love. It doesn't say excuse. It does not say mitigate. It does not say it's not as bad as we should consider it. It actually says hate. I hate every false way. 128, 119, 128. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. I hate every false way. And 163, 163. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. We ought to be just like this. This is a righteous prophet speaking these prayers to God about how he compares the word of God, which he loves, which is pure, which should be loved, compared to falsehood, whether it's falsehood in him or falsehood in others. This is the righteous perspective on sin and judgment. It's a New Testament concept as well. Luke 14, Luke 14, 25. Luke 14, 25 to 35. Luke 14, 25. Jesus as well, our loving Lord taught us to hate, to hate sin embedded in the sinner, to hate it. Luke 14, 25. Now, great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He's telling the great crowds, the multitudes, this truth. No one can be a true disciple of Christ unless he hates father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and even his own life. He does not mean hate in terms of mistreating people. He's talking about hate meaning it's the sin that people commit. And if they commit those sins and we commit those sins, we ourselves commit those sins, 
we must hate those sins, despise, reject, get rid of, repent of those sins. How seriously does he mean it? Let's now see. He illustrates for us with a few illustrations. 27 to 35. Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Are we finishers? Do we calculate the cost? Do we see whether we have the money and the equipment and the laborers to accomplish what we must in the Christian life? He's comparing the building of a building to the Christian life. Are we going to complete the building or are we going to be an object of ridicule who does the Christian life temporarily but then abandons the project of the Christian life? He walks away. Further, verse 31. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Are we willing to count the cost of winning the battle? Count the cost of winning the battle fighting the good fight of faith, finishing the course, keeping the faith. It may cost us our, our, all of our possessions. And then are we useless? Completely and utterly useless. Verse 34, Therefore salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Are we listening spiritually? Are we tasteless? Are we useless? Are we useless for the soil? Are we useless to put in the ground for the garden or whatever? Are we useless? And even are we useless for the manure pile? He means we people who do not have true faith and do not hate our sin and understand the righteous judgment of God and live accordingly, we are tasteless and useless and even worse than a pile of manure. Jesus said so. Jesus 
said so. The Lord Jesus Christ said that worthless people, useless people, are even worthless, useless for the manure pile. We can be west, uh, worse than manure when we do not comprehend sin and judgment. This chapter in 2 Timothy 4 continues to explain. This is the Apostle Paul likely writing at the end of his life. We have a couple of indications, especially in verses 6 to 8, that this is at the end of his life. The letter of 2 Timothy is an exhortation to fight the good fight until the end. Fight the good fight Keep the faith, finish the course until the end of life, until we meet our Lord. Verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Notice the colon. This is an introduction. He's going to present the exhortation in verses 2 and following, 2 to 8. But before he does, he says he has a solemn charge, a serious charge, a serious solemn announcement that he expects Timothy and all of us to keep. He has mentioned the solemnity of what he's been saying throughout. 1 Timothy 5 21, 1 Timothy 5, 21. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. 1 Timothy 6, 13, 6, 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. 2 Timothy 2.14, 2 Timothy 2.14, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. The scripture presents to us not fleeting advice, not advice that we may call fables or worldly proverbs, nothing like that. The Bible is full of solemn charges. These are incumbent upon us to act upon them. This is serious business. This is not a time to play. It's not a time to be frivolous. When we think about what the Word of God says, it's solemn. It, why is it solemn? Partially, not only because of the content, but because of whose pres in whose presence this charge is made. It's in the presence of God and Christ. God, Christ, his chosen angels in 1 Timothy 5.21. Here, also, Christ is described as the judge of the living and the dead. Further, it is buttressed by his appearing. He came in his incarnation and accomplished the work of redemption for us. It's an 
event of the past. It has been accomplished. Why did he come into the world? We cannot think of that in a flippant and frivolous way. He came into the world to die for our sins and rise from the dead. He came so, so that people would believe in him and show that true belief by repenting of their sins. And his kingdom. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion is one that continues from generation to generation. His kingdom is eternal. So we have the king of kings in heaven, and we must submit to him. We are under his domain. We are under his kingship. He has rules in his rulership. He's not like an earthly king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. We must submit to him. This is his introduction. What a way to introduce what he's about to say. We see also when Moses was about to die, and also when Joshua was about to die, they presented to the people solemn charges. Read the last few chapters of the book of Deuteronomy. Read Deuteronomy, especially chapters 26 to 34. The last several chapters of the book of Deuteronomy. For that matter, the whole book of Deuteronomy was Moses' last series of discourses. But especially right before he died, chapters 26 to 34. There is not, there's no fun and games there. He does not want people to remember him as a candy man. He wants people to remember him as a true prophet who delivered to the people the words of God. The same with Joshua. Joshua chapters 23 and 24, right before Joshua died. He did not present to them uh, good old stories of the past. He was not presenting to them jokes. He didn't want them to, rem them to remember him as a good comedian. That didn't matter to Joshua. He wanted the people to know they were gross sinners, just like Moses did. They were gross sinners and they better repent of their sins or face the righteous judgment of God. Joshua 23 to 24. The Apostle Paul does the same to Timothy. And he's going to do it in a different way, presenting to him some warnings about what he should do, what he should not do, what he should expect. And then at the end, verses 9 to 22, showing those who were righteous and those who were wicked. And that Timothy, and as well as us, we should follow the righteous and not be like a few of these wicked men that he mentions here. Verse 2, the exhortation. Preach the word. He says, preach the word. What word does he mean? The word of Christ. Colossians 3.16, Romans 10.17. He's talking about the word of Christ because if we don't have faith in the word of Christ, we will not be saved. We note he does not mean the word of men. He does not mean to preach ourselves. 2 Corinthians 4.5 says, We do not preach ourselves. 
1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5, teaches that we ought to preach the testimony of God, that our faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The wisdom of men. We're not preaching the words of men. We are preaching the words of Christ. The word of the cross. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. This is what we have to preach. But what will men do that Timothy should not do? He's going to show Timothy what he should not do and what others will seek. But what should Timothy not do? Timothy should not adulterate the word of God. Timothy should not peddle the word of God. He's not a seller of Scripture. Sellers of Scripture are slick, serpentine salesmen. You cannot trust them. They are selling snake oil. It says this in 2 Corinthians 2.17. 2 Corinthians 2.17. For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. With a clear conscience before God, he's not peddling, he's not selling the word of God. He is sincere in the sight of God and Christ, preaching it as it is. As for adulterating it, 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. He is not polluting, profaning, adulterating the word. 2 Corinthians 4, 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness, or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We renounce hidden things, dark, dirty things done in secret by the false teachers. We renounce hidden things. We don't walk in craftiness. We do not adulterate the word of God. But we manifest the truth, both in life and lips. We manifest the truth to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's what it means to preach the word. 2 Timothy 4.2 he says we ought to be this way, be ready in season and out of season. In season and out of season. That means year-round, always, 24-7, night and day, whether it's convenient or inconvenient, whether we like it or not, whether we are distracted or not. This should be on our mind to preach the word. Not to mitigate it, not to make excuses, but always be ready to deliver the Word of God 
to everyone in every situation in any given occasion. The minister should be that way. Sinister ministers do not do so. Sinister ministers will put a show of the Bible in the pulpit, present a show, but in day-to-day life, whenever trials arise, whenever controversies arise, whenever decisions need to be made in life, they don't have the Word of God ready for the people. They don't say, let's see what the Word says. They don't ask that question. They don't care. They don't care to be ready in season and out of season. But the true minister does. What else does the true minister do? He reproves and rebukes. To reprove and to rebuke. This is something that the people do not want to hear. And even most of the time, for most ministers, they have to fight the flesh. And the majority, the vast majority, refuse to fight the flesh. They refuse to reprove and rebuke and exhort with great patience and instruction. They refuse to do that. Yet we should not. Titus 1, Titus chapter 1. Titus 1, verse 10. 10 to 16, Titus 1, 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this cause reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Does the pastor think that there are people who must be silenced? This is what it means to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. They must be silenced. How are they going to be silenced? With the word. The pastor must speak up. The pastor must take action. The pastor must be ready for battle. Always. Titus 2.15. Titus 2.15. These things speak and exhort and reprove. With all authority, let no one disregard you. The pastor is supposed to speak, exhort, and reprove with all authority. Whose authority? Does the authority arise from within him? No. The authority comes from God through the word of God. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. All authority 
has been given to Christ as ministers of Christ, pastors of Christ, shepherds of Christ. We have this authority from him through his word and calling to preach this way. Titus 3.8. Titus 3.8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. We are supposed to speak confidently. Confidence in what the Bible says is not arrogance. It is the conviction of faith. Confidence in the words of men, confidence in speculation, confidence in the traditions of men, that is arrogance because it exceeds what is written. 1 Corinthians 4.6 Now, the hearers. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. 2 Timothy 4.3 For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. The time will come. He already told us about that in chapter 3. 3 verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come then a full list of the sins of our time in verses 2 to 13. And in verse 13, he says, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That is the, in the last days, our days. The time has come. They won't endure sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. That doctrine is both theological and moral. Sound doctrine is not only theology, sound theology, which it ought to be, but it is also sound morality. In Titus 2, 1 to 15, he introduces this chapter, which has exhortations for old men and young men, old women and young women, and even slaves. Exhortations on how they ought to live. But he introduced it in verse 1 by calling it sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. They don't want sound doctrine. Corrupt theology is for the purpose of corrupt morality. When people have unsound, unhealthy, cancerous theology it produces cancerous morality. The two go together. Well, God's a God of love. He loves everybody. He loves me. It doesn't matter what I do. He still loves me. And his grace will be sufficient for me on the day of judgment. I'll go to heaven. Don't tell me how I ought to live. Don't tell me what I ought to think. Don't tell me what I ought to believe. Don't say I'm using bad words that I can't use cuss words. Don't say that things like that. Let me be who I am. God made me this way, and I depend on his grace and love. 
What is that? That's a combination of corrupt, heretical theology and corrupt, heretical morality. It's unsound doctrine. The two go together. He says people won't endure it. They can't tolerate it. It causes consternation. It causes them to have upset stomachs. It causes them to have nightmares. It causes them to avoid the people of God. It causes them not to read the Word of God. It causes them to stop going to church. It causes them to lash out in rage and hatred against the people who are lovingly trying to tell them the truth. It says they will not endure sound doctrine. Not only will they hate the Word of God delivered by the people of God, what do they do? They go elsewhere. They say, it says, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside the myths. When we hear the word myth, we're not talking about the god Atlas, the god Zeus, the god Osiris, gods and goddesses. We're not talking about uh, Marduk and Ishtar. We're not necessarily talking about Krishna and Brahma. We're not necessarily talking about myths in that way. It includes those. But what are the myths he's talking about here? It includes those, but to a professing audience, to a Jewish audience, to a Pharisaical audience, to an audience, to people who know the Bible somewhat, to people who go to church. They don't go to the Muslim mosque. They don't go to the Hindu temple. They don't go to the Buddhist temple. They go to the church building. They go there. Is it possible for those people to believe in myths? Yes. God loves me just as I am. God cares for me and he'll take care of me. Nobody's perfect. Nobody is sinless. So don't bother me about talk about sin. And don't keep telling me about the righteous judgment of God. Don't keep preaching hell. Don't you have any love in you? That's the way they react. That is mythology. Because if they concoct, if they invent, if they fabricate a God that does not actually exist in the Bible, then they believe in mythology. They turn aside to myths. They will cling to myths. And their ears cannot tolerate hearing the truth. People will be that way, and the false shepherds know so. That's why they preach it. A false shepherd is a ravenous wolf in sheep's clothing. And he preaches to the troublesome goats in sheep's clothing in the congregation. The troublesome goats in the congregation are also dressed up as sheep. The savage, bloodthirsty wolves 
are also dressed up as shepherds in the pulpit. That's what's going on. And the goats know what kind of a false pastor to find. They know. He tells stories. He's got some humor. He's likable. I like his personality. I like his background. I, I appreciate his education. He's handsome. He's well-spoken. He's eloquent. He's charming. He's charming. He can ca keep your attention. These are the things that they want instead of the unadulterated, truthful Word of God. On the other hand, the pastor should not succumb to this temptation to present myths to the people. He says in verse 5, Instead, the pastor, the true pastor, but you, be sober in all things. Be sober. What's the opposite of sober-mindedness? Intoxication. Drunkenness. People, when they are not thinking straight spiritually, when they're not sober spiritually, they're behaving like drunkards who don't understand the time of day, they don't understand where they are, they don't understand that they are in danger, they're about to cross the street in the middle of traffic and the vehicles will run them down, mow them down. They don't understand danger. And what they say is unintelligible. What did you just say? Are you drunk? This is the unsober mindedness. That's the way people are when they're not thinking biblically. When they're not thinking biblically, scripturally, they are thinking like a drunkard. Who wants to be identified as a drunkard? The pastor shouldn't, and the people should. Endure hardship. Endure hardship. Is this not what he's been saying throughout this letter? That hardship awaits? He said in 3.11, persecution, sufferings. Persecutions and sufferings. Verse 12, and indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It will happen. Hardship happens. By the way, hardship happens not only in the Christian life. Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, Muslims, Shintoists, Confucianists, you name it. They are all experiencing hardship in life in one way or another. Everybody experiences hardship. We say this because we should not think, well, I just want an easy life. Well, just examine anybody's life accurately and you'll notice, you'll see that they have a lifetime of hardship. Even the rich and the famous have a lifetime of hardship. But our hardship is worth it. Theirs is not worth it. Ours is worth it because we have the eternal kingdom that awaits us. Do the work of an evangelist. A pastor who does not evangelize 
is not a pastor. That means that he doesn't care for the truth. He doesn't care for souls. He doesn't believe that when people die, they'll go to hell. A pastor must evangelize. Fulfill your ministry. The ministry comes with a calling. Fulfilling the ministry, he's about to explain more in verses 6 to 8. Fulfilling the ministry. We cannot say, well, I ministered for a year. I ministered for 10 years. I ministered for 30 years. That's enough. Now it's time to enjoy myself. No. Fulfilling the ministry is to be done until our last breath. Didn't the Apostle Paul do it in this letter? Yes. Did not Joshua do it in his farewell address? Joshua 23 to 24. Did not Moses do it in his farewell address? Deuteronomy 26 to 34. Yes, they did. And the same with us. Verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's being poured out as a drink offering. That is, his blood being poured out is similar to the drink offering of the Old Testament being poured out. That our bodies do not belong to us, they belong to the Lord, and however the Lord wants us to sacrifice our bodies, that's how they should be sacrificed. He says he's ready to be executed. And church history says that Emperor Nero executed the Apostle Paul. The Roman Emperor Nero executed the Apostle Paul. He knows that his departure, the time of his departure has come. What departure does he mean? He doesn't mean leaving one station to another, from one city to another. He's talking about ultimate departure. He says in Philippians 1, 21 to 24, I... Desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. That's the departure he's talking about. Departure similar to the Exodus, when the people of Israel left Egypt, left the slavery to sin, or slavery to the Egyptians, which was a symbol of slavery to sin, and they were to enter the land of Canaan, a symbol of heaven. The same here, the Apostle Paul. He's departing this sinful world and entering the sinless world to come. Heaven. That time has come for him. He says the following. He says the following as a confession. He says the following as a point of encouragement. He says the following as a matter of conviction. He doesn't say the following in arrogance. He's not bragging. He's not braggadocious. He's not doing that. He's saying it to Timothy and to all of us so that we might do the same. As he says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. In the same way, we are to imitate Paul, like Timothy was to imitate Paul. I have fought the good fight. Will we be able to say that before our last breath? The good fight of the Christian life. I have finished the course. 
Did we say, well, I cannot run the marathon. I cannot box against that champion. We can't be that way. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 27, he said the opposite. He said that we have an eternal wreath. We have an eternal prize that we are seeking. The athletes do it for these other reasons, for something perishable. We're doing it for something imperishable. We must finish the course. Exercise, train, ex exert ourselves in the Christian faith and don't lose heart. Don't grow weary of doing good. After all, most of us, we have not yet resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. Hebrews 12, 3. Further, I have kept the faith. Kept the sound faith. Kept the true faith. Kept what Christ taught. 1 Corinthians 6, or 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, 1 Timothy 6, 3. He says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine conforming to godliness. Verse 4, he is conceited and understands nothing. He kept the faith, that faith which is contained here in the gospel. He kept it until the end. He didn't dilute it. He did not pollute it at all. So should we. And so what awaits? Verse 8, 2 Timothy 4, 8. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. A righteous crown. Remember, we shall reign with him. He says in... 2 Timothy 2.12, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. We will reign with Christ forever. Our first experience of reigning will be helping or accompanying him in judging the world. Do you not know that, that the saints will judge the world? 1 Corinthians 6.2 do you not know that we shall judge angels? That's the kind of crown of righteousness we will have to be able to carry out the judgment. But also, who is going to award it to us? The righteous judge. Will award to me on that day. Who is the righteous judge? The one who, who's appearing we love, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In verse 1 and in verse 8, his appearing is his first coming. His appearing is his first coming. As he said in 2 Timothy 1.10, 2 Timothy 1.10, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
we who have loved the fact that he came in his first coming anticipate what he came to give us in his second coming on the day of judgment. Are we living like this? This is sin and righteousness. This is reward and retribution. It's one or the other, a reward or retribution. Now, examples of those who received rewards because they are commended and those who received retribution because they are exposed as being frauds and reprobates. We have two reprobates here. Verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus, to Dalmatia. He wants the company of Timothy. He wants Timothy's presence, but he also wants the cloak, the books, especially the parchments. The cloak, most likely, because winter is coming. Verse 21, make every effort to come before winter. He wants Timothy's company, but notice he has deserters. Verse 10, Demas. Demas, he was with them for a while, according to Colossians 4.14 and Philemon 24. Colossians 4.14, Philemon 24, Demas was with them for a while. But he is one of those who loved this present world. He's one of the men described in verses 3 to 4. They, he would not continue, but turned aside to others, false teachers and mythology in the present world. He had a love of the world, not the world to come, but the present world, and so deserted Paul. Abandoned Paul. Others did not abandon him, but went for various reasons, as he says, Crescens and Titus went elsewhere for other reasons, not because they deserted him. Verse 11, only Luke is with me. Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, and the book of Acts. Only Luke was with him at the time. He's going to explain more as to why. Only Luke was with him. In the book of Acts, chapters 16 to 28, the last half of the book, you'll notice that there are certain verses that say we and us. Who are the we and us? At least Paul and Luke. Luke 16 to, I'm sorry, Acts 16 to Acts 28, it is Luke. And Luke was with the apostle all the way to Rome and stayed with Paul in Rome. And likely until the very end, until the apostle was executed. Only Luke. Why only Luke? Where was everybody else? We're not talking about those who could not be there those who were on mission elsewhere, 
those who had responsibilities elsewhere, those who were incapable of coming. But of all the people from Jerusalem to Rome, of all the people, nobody else could come? Only Luke? Why? Verse 11, Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Mark. Mark was a relative of Barnabas. Mark is first mentioned in this way in terms of ministry in the book of Acts, Acts 12, verse 12. But then in chapter 13, verse 13, he deserts the apostle. And then in chapter 15 of the book of Acts, the apostle Paul and Barnabas have a dispute. The apostle Paul was correct, Barnabas was wrong, because Mark was a defector. He deserted, he abandoned the mission with the Apostle Paul and became untrustworthy. However, since that time, Acts 15 to 2 Timothy 4, Mark regained his strength, proved his character, and that's why he's now saying, bring him with you for he is useful to me for service. He repented, Mark repented. Verse 12, But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Likely, these are the books and parchments. Parchment is the a writing surface made of the skin of animals. Made of the skin of animals in order to write books, and even to write the books of Scripture. Different surfaces were used in the time of manuscripts or in the time of handwritten manuscripts. Papyri and paper were used, but the printing press, not until the 14 and 1500s, was the printing press invented. Before that time, they would write on parchments and papyri and rock and such surfaces. They wrote on those surfaces, and that's what likely the scriptures were written upon. That's what he likely wants here. Most likely, he's not talking about the books of men. Why would he want the books of men when he's about to die? He, he wants those parchments, books of scripture. Fourteen, an unfaithful man, a defector, and an enemy. 14 and 15. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. In the case of Alexander and Demas, the apostle does not offer a prayer. He understands that what they have done makes them beyond prayer. Beyond prayer rectification, beyond reconciliation and resolution. Yes, people can be and ought to be identified if they are so. For example, Demas would be Proverbs 28.1. Proverbs 28.1, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Demas fled. He deserted Paul and clung on to the world. He imbibed, indulged into the world. 
But Alexander the coppersmith, Proverbs 29.1, Proverbs 29.1, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. Much reproof, much warning, but if they persist, they will be broken beyond remedy. In modern theology, modern free will theology, modern distortions of grace and love, they say, oh, nobody is, nobody is beyond redemption. Nobody is beyond remedy. Everybody is savable. Everybody is. Not so. People might become beyond remedy. Does not the apostle say so in Hebrews chapter 6? Hebrews 6, 6 and then have fallen away. It is impossible. He says impossible. There's no ambiguity with this Greek word and the translation of it. It says, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Impossible to renew again to repentance. 1 John 5, 1 John 5 16, 5, 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. When people commit the sin that leads to death, no request for this. Our example is Alexander the coppersmith, who did much harm to the apostle. This is not the apostle who is bearing a grudge. This is not the apostle in retaliation. This is the apostle <clears throat> understanding that this man, Alexander, is beyond remedy, impossible, no prayer offered for him, and the Lord is going to repay him according to his deeds, which means punishment on the Day of Judgment. 4.15. Not only does he mention Alexander, but why does he mention him by name? And also, he specifies the coppersmith so as to avoid confusion with another Alexander. Why? Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Be on guard. Names are mentioned in the Bible so that we might be on guard against those people. The same in modern times. Names must be mentioned so we know who we're talking about. We have to know who we're talking about. So names must be named. The Bible names names, we must name names so that we can warn the sheep to avoid those people. Now 16, mercy. 16, mercy and a prayer. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Here he's talking about people such as Simon Peter. Simon Peter denied Christ three times. 
He deserted Christ. He denied Christ. He cursed. But Peter was a believer. He was truly regenerate. And the same with these people. Paul knows who they are in terms of their character. And in a sudden moment, an onslaught of fright, being afraid of the Romans, they deserted Paul. But Paul says, may it not be counted against them. There will be such individuals, and God may have mercy on them. Just as Christ prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Luke 23, 34. Just as Stephen in Acts 7, verse 60 says, may it not be counted, may the sin not be counted against them. God may answer that prayer. In the case of Stephen, it was answered in the case of Saul of Tarsus. Saul was there, and he was a beneficiary of that prayer. That may happen, and there might be people like that. But even though people desert us, we should not give up. Notice verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will be with us. The Lord will strengthen us. Chapter 3, verse 11. Out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Now, he may well deliver us many times in this life from danger and persecutions. He may do so many times. But ultimately, we're going to die of something. We're going to die of our last disease. We're going to die of an accident. We might die by execution because we are persecuted to death. We will die of something. But when we are dead, whatever the cause, what do we know? Verse 18. We know this. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. True faith that understands the life to come understands that even though evildoers and imposters <clears throat> perpetrate evil against us, God will deliver us. We might die the death of a criminal, but not be a real criminal. And who will determine that? The Lord himself, who brings us safely, our soul safely into his heavenly kingdom, because we have loved his appearing. And on that day, he will award us with the crown of righteousness. That's our hope. Think about the life to come, not this life. A few more greetings and instructions. 19. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Prisca is abbreviated form of Priscilla, mentioned in Acts 18. Throughout the chapter, mentioned a couple of times. Acts chapter 18, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla was the wife, Aquila the husband. Aquila was the husband. 
they were faithful missionaries and ambassadors of Christ, companions of the Apostle Paul, doing ministry together. The household of Onesiphorus, they were mentioned in chapter 1, verse 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. He wasn't ashamed of the chains of the apostle. That's why the greeting. Now, verse 20. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Trophimus. The apostle Paul left him sick. Does that mean Trophimus lacked faith? Does that mean the apostle Paul lacked faith? Why didn't the apostle heal him? You don't necessarily have to have faith to be healed. Was Lazarus healed of death because he had faith? No. Jesus raised him from the dead. He didn't have any faith to be raised from the dead. You don't need necessarily to have faith to be healed. But Paul didn't heal him because God had something better in mind perhaps to use Trophimus in Miletus for a longer period. Just as the Apostle Paul with the Galatians. Galatians 4, Galatians 4, 13 to 15. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. The apostle says, because he had a bodily illness, he preached the gospel to the Galatians. Probably meaning that if he weren't ill or sick and having to stay in Galatia, he would have proceeded on elsewhere and would not have opportunity to meet the Galatians to preach to them. God uses illness for his glory. 21 to 22. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. May the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. These others also were apparently able to visit the apostle and were fond of Timothy, and therefore the greetings are conveyed. He says again, make every effort. When there is a valid need among the brethren, are we eager or are we lazy? Are we tender or are we callous? to meet the need. He exhorts Timothy, verse 9 and verse 21, make every effort to come to me and to come before winter. Let's be eager to help one another. Not lazy and not careless and callous. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.